Hey everyone, and welcome to the House Conspiracy Podcast, a show that's about the house and on the house. I'm Jonathan O'Brien, and I'm the founding creative director here at House Conspiracy. Today I'm talking with Carolyn Kropp, uh, director and co-writer of The Repairman by Loose Screw Theatre Troupe, uh, which they put on as part of House Conspiracy and Anywhere Theatre Festival's residency round Partnership. Um, we had a good time on this podcast and we covered a bunch of stuff to do with sexuality, representation, theatre, and some of Kaz's own stories to do with making art while growing up and making art based on how she grew up. Um, so here's a little bit of housekeeping. Uh, just remember to subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're on iTunes, if you could throw us a rating or a review, that'd be wild. Um, you can also follow us on Facebook and Instagram at House Conspiracy and visit our website to see how we can support you at houseconspiracy.org. And now... On to the show. The Repairman is a sharehouse drama and it was staged upstairs in House Conspiracy in front of a small audience and each of the characters were given a room of the house and they would come and go from the main performance space through their doors as well as the front and back doors of the house. And the performance was, in that way, very well realised within the space. Even the chalkboard doors to each room the characters uh, had and were assigned to had marks on them as though they'd really lived there. You know, their names, memes, uh, little sayings, little notes, little arguments, little tic-tac-toe games. Um, the attention to detail was phenomenal and you know the couch in the living room which was the the main area of the action looked quite homely there were photos of the actors sitting on night's ends it was it was really nice and it, it did feel like uh loose screw theater troupe made the house their own for the performance which was awesome here's a quick outline of the repairman from kaz and loose screw theater troupe themselves the repairman is a show about being broken do you want the things that broke you to be taken away or are they such a part of you or are you tired of other people telling you you're broken? What happens if you're offered the opportunity to lose things that broke you? Do you say yes? And now, here's Kaz Kroc. <laughs> hey, so uh, you just finished a season of uh, your show, The Repairman. Yes, yes we did. And how are you feeling? So happy that it's over and I have no more power. It's great. You have no more power? <laughs> I have no mean? more power. I'm, I'm quite capable of, of leading and being in charge when I have to be, but I also really just enjoy not having that responsibility mm -hmm. all the time. Did you find it to be a kind of exhausting process, sort of? Yeah. What, what's hard about it? It was, it was tiring. It? What's I think, hard about it for like, we, we did about two, three months worth of rehearsals because we decided to do it over a longer period instead mm -hmm. of in um, just one big lump at the end. And, and probably because of doing that and because of doing honours at uni was just, yeah, hectic, busy, a lot of work, mm -hmm. a lot of, lot of time-consuming and a lot of emotional stuff because my honours project is also very emotional. So, like, yeah. Hmm. There's a lot, a lot of questions to go off there, but what's um, what's what's emotional for you about the show? Tell 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 me a bit about the show and tell me about like what's your stake in it. Um, I think probably the biggest stake for me personally in the show um, 
is essentially the character of Grace being an asexual person and mm-hmm. myself being an asexual person, um, being able to have that representation, no matter how small it is, no matter how small our show may have been, being able to have mm-hmm. that representation and uh, get it out there mm. was a big stake for me and kind of seeing how people reacted to that was a big stake, so... Mm. Yeah. And how did you find people reacting sort of to it? Um, we didn't have anything but positive feedback from the people that came and saw it. Everybody really enjoyed it. People um, said they really liked it. Um, last night, actually, we had a couple of people who came who all, all identified as ace. Mm. So right, they, yeah, the group. Yeah. So they came and um, I got to stand like a little back little bit back and kind of watch how they reacted to the the whole coming out scene and talk to them afterwards and mm-hmm. there was a lot of a lot of excitement that there was a ace character that um that there was actually that representation um a lot of excitement about how it like played out that there was a little bit of discourse in it that mm-hmm. um yeah, and um, a bit of recognition in that role as well. Uh, one of the girls stood there and went, yeah, no, that basically happened with my boyfriend. So my ex-boyfriend, mm. that was that was how that happened. I was like, cool, cool. I'm basing it off my experiences, but it's still identifiable to other people, which is really cool. Yeah, right. There's a universality yeah. to it for people who go through yeah. that sort of situation, at least. Mm. So universal... Within a small demographic, yes. but yep. but um, so did you invite those people along, knowing that they'd identified? Did they find the show? Like, I, what was the process? I didn't. Um, one of my cast members, Tess, who mm-hmm. uh, who plays, plays Grace, Grace yeah. um, mentioned it to one of them who she's friends with, and that person then went, "Hey, there's this show. Do you guys want to come?" And they all came along. So rad. Yeah, that was pretty cool. Is that is that a like? I'll give I'll give a little bit of uh, context on the show. The yeah. show is called The Repairman, and in it, um, a repairman, uh, a fantasy sort of character who can fix any root cause problem um, problem in quote marks, uh, and is is sent by someone else to repair someone else on stage, and that someone yeah. is Grace, who identifies as asexual, yes. and the boyfriend character has come on in and he's gone, I'm going to fix you, despite the fact that it's not... You're right. Yeah? Yeah, yeah. yeah. The play argues sort of it's not something yeah. to be fixed. It's the, 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 I don't know whether we ended up getting the point across or whether it read, but the, the point of that was it's literally not something that can be fixed. It's not something mm-hmm. within the realm of the repairman to fix. Like he, he says... Um, couldn't fix you even if you wanted me to Hmm. because the idea of sexuality and however you identify is not something to be fixed it's just how it is Mm -hmm. um so in the nature versus nurture argument you fall you fall in the nature yeah Hmm. well yeah um i mean sexuality is is fluid and i don't think it's up to anyone else to at any point say well you're wrong because you dated a guy and now you're saying you're asexual 
you're wrong, obviously, you must be straight. Like, that's not up to someone else to say. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, could go in on that, but I wanted to ask, sort of, was having those ace people show up, was that sort of a particularly meaningful moment? Was it more meaningful that those people got to show up and see themselves on stage, or was it more meaningful for you that people who maybe weren't as aware got to see it? Like, which, which one to you is the more valuable thing? I think... Like, I got, I got to talk to a couple of different people about it. Um, I think in the end, it was more valuable to me to have those people who did identify as ace mm-hmm. be able to see it. Because a couple of my friends came on Saturday night and they identify kind of um, on those spectrums somewhere as well, um, as well as these people last night. And it was it was... I think it was the most exciting thing for me to enable a show that could allow these people to see themselves on stage mm-hmm. because I know that it's ridiculous to try and find someone who is an ace character on stage. I think there's like Pushing Daisies is the one one show that I know of that you can kind of call the main character Ace and is never specifically defined as such but that's the one show that I know of hmm yeah yeah I mean I, mean, I have to admit it's, it's not something it's not a sort of thing that I've thought of in terms of representation um very much yeah it's not it's not played on on my mind um do you think is it one of the things that because it doesn't really come up when, when we talk about sort of quotas and yeah. identification and subgroups yeah. and whatnot. Um, yeah, it, I think because the amount of people who identify as ace is so small mm. that it really does fly under the radar. And it's not, it's not necessarily something that even... Uh, I guess it's not as observable as as being there will be. Right, because it's kind of it flies it's under the literally the absence of action. Yes, yes, and it's not that um, that asexual people don't want to be in relationships because quite frequently they do. Right, asexual do and aromantic. Yeah, yes, yeah, split split attractions. Um, so yeah. Like, it's, it's interesting to see how people reacted and, and um, how people reacted to such a small subset of people and something that probably a lot of our audience didn't even really know is a thing. Right, so, yeah. Yeah, because it is, it is such a, a small group of the ooh, population. About um, 1%, I think, identified. One percent. One percent. That's pretty high. They're they're um not not entirely sure that that is the actual number because because again because it's so um, flies under the radar so much they're not entirely sure that they haven't got all of the people who do actually mm. identify as ace um, because people don't have the word to connect to it. Yeah. Yeah. So, right. Where's the where's the one percent piece of data come from? 
Oh, that that's a piece of data that has been flying around um, asexual kind of communities for a long time, and I'm not even sure where where it comes from. Mm. Um, but it, it was the statistic that I first learned about two years ago mm-hmm. when when I started realizing that was how I identified as well. So yeah. It's probably changed. Yeah. At this point. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I don't, I, I don't know at all the mm. um, statistics on that. Um, sounds quite high to me, but mm. um, I don't know. Look it up. Look it up, audience. <laughs> audience, look, look it up yourselves. Um, Google, Google is Google, your friend. Google is your friend. <laughs> um, yeah, learn them facts because uh, we don't know them. <laughs> um, hey, um, so. You were mentioning that um, being a director gives you a lot of power and you're glad to sort of get rid of that responsibility. Um, (laughs) To put it bluntly, right? To restate your question Uh really bluntly. Um, Your process uh, as a director um, is quite collaborative. Yep. Um, Talk to to me about that. Talk to me about directing from behind, as you sort of mentioned. Um, Well, I think coming into it, especially as this kind of being my first show that I've directed fully mm-hmm. um, and knowing how well all of the people that we had in the cast knowing how well they they work collaboratively um, it was kind of the easy decision um, and it still it still takes a little bit of work sometimes I think to get people feeling comfortable about being able to make decisions mm-hmm. um, that that was a little bit a little bit when we first started was kind of me saying hey what do you feel like you want to do with this um, how do you feel about that line how do you feel about that movement do you want to improvise a scene and see how we go from there um, and it took it took a little bo- little while, but um, I think we hit one night where one of the cast kind of said, "Look, I'm having a bit of a rough night. Can I just do this scene? Can I just improvise it and see what happens?" And I said, "Yep, hundred percent. Go for it. Um, make sure you're okay, but go for it." Um, and it did, and we ended up coming out from that night with um, the monologue that Richard does mm. which was never going to be a thing that was never ever going to be a thing in the original script plans that I had in the back of my mind um, but coming out from that night we all went cool that that was great that adds so much depth to that character let's let's keep it um, were you recording the rehearsal yeah we, we recorded that rehearsal um, we recorded that specific segment the monologue that specific monologue um and it was very intense for him um but yeah it it ended up with we ended up with such a fantastic um moment between two characters and um that wasn't something that i i had 
thought of. It wasn't something that I had decided that I wanted to do. It came out of one of the actors saying, hey, I need to do this thing. Can we do this thing? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think if I'd, I'd tried to sit up on the top of the hierarchy as a dictator or <laughs> director, yeah. we would have we would have never gotten that. Um, mm. And because we're all peers at the same time, right. it felt more... Uh, realistic. Yeah, more honest. More do you, honest to do it that way. Is there is there a risk doing sort of um, collaborative, sort of directorial leading from behind? Is there a risk that you'll end up with a an uneven sort of mishmash show? Like, is there a nervousness there compared to sort of the more autocratic um, directorial? I think yes, but I think I kind of came at it from the angle that even though I had a high stake in it mm. personally, it wasn't, it was never going to be just my show. Right. It's that co-written. I, it was for it's, it's co-written for starters. I have a co-writer. She was amazing. Um, Annabelle. Right? Annabelle. Mm-hmm. Annabelle. Love her to death. We had such a great process there. Um, but I also wanted all of the actors to feel like they owned their own character. Mm-hmm. Um, and that really worked with like the character of Richard. It worked with, with Tess. It worked with with Nick. I can't imagine anyone else doing the repairman because he nails it every time and the yeah. audience think he's fantastic. Yeah, Nick's really charming. It, it worked with Sophie. Sophie is just Sam. And Kayla worked so hard on on Billy and Billy's arc and, and coming to me when she kind of said, hey, I feel like Billy's losing anything right now. She's kind of just a third third arc that's not making any sense. Mm. So, yeah, I think it worked really well that way, having, having everybody feel like they could take ownership of their character and enough ownership that if they felt that character was losing momentum, that they could come to me and say, hey, we need to work on this. So, I feel like I went on a really long tangent. No, no, didn't no, no, actually no. Have anything. no, 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 it was good. You're, you're essentially saying that it's about trust, right? It's yeah. It's about kind of being able to place yeah. a segment of your art piece. You solo directed, though it was co-wrote. Yes, co-written, yeah, yeah, I did. Yeah, so... Um, yeah, so sort of, yeah, it's about kind of as a director going like, hey, this piece is yours. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And is that, because you obviously had sort of a, going back, you're all at QUT. Yes. So yeah. you, you obviously had a sort of um, a camaraderie. Yeah, um, we've all all either worked with each other before or worked around each other. Um, most of us, aside from Andrew, did... Um, a work in progress of this at Fresh Mm. Blood Festival last year. Yeah, I remember that. So um, we came from that process into this process. Um, And Tess and Andrew have worked together on shows. Ellen and I have been working on stuff since first year together. Um, I've I've worked on Kayla with a couple of different things. Um, I've worked on tests with tests on a couple of different things and Sophie and Nick are in the same year so yeah they're quite familiar 
I, I, I only sort of, I, I remember I, I critiqued the repairman at Fresh Blood for being a couple last year. I don't remember what I said, um, but I don't think I remember the ace angle or anything in it. So was no. was the show always intended to kind of grow into being that or did it become that? It, it was always, it was always that. Um, and it was always the character of Richard being the kind of one who's calling the repairman. Um, it was pretty much the work in progress was basically just the first scene because at the time that's what I could get out. Um, so I was sitting in Papua New Guinea looking at emails on my phone going, oh, I need to have stuff ready for fresh blood. What were you doing in Papua New Guinea? Um, I was over there with Kegla doing mm. a um, process drama workshops with uh, the University of Garoka combined with QUT. Teaching or learning? Um, a bit of both. Okay, so it was a like peer-based? Yeah, it was, it was QUT-based. We went over with George Molina. Um, and yeah, it was, it was it's the kind of process drama stuff that you do in a first-year drama subject, but actually in a real-world environment where you mm-hmm. are, you're actually working with a community. Quickly define process drama. Um, pros- <laughs> process drama is it's basically... Um, I mean, I know what it is. I'm just asking for the audience. <laughs> yeah. I don't know what it is. Uh, tell me what it is. <laughs> <laughs> um, process drama is basically running a workshop around a specific topic say domestic violence yeah. which is what oh we, okay like theater of the oppressed yeah what we were doing in Papua New Guinea running it around based around um gendered violence and um it's it's basically taking a community through a process mm-hmm. a dramatic process and coming out on the other end with a, a product but the product's not the thing the process the, is the, the thing the journey's what matters so you do you do kind of um some games, some mm-hmm. workshops, uh, things like hot seating where you talk to characters and you enroll the audience as characters. And it's it's a really interesting way because of, of kind of looking at a topic like gendered violence because you, you put people into situations. Situations, you make them act it out. Yeah. What would you do? What, what would happen? Yeah. And it's in a safe space. Mm. So, which is absolutely fascinating watching people over there doing because they got into it faster than a first year drama class Hmm. which I was not expecting and it was absolutely lovely to see I've heard a lot of um sort of like Tyler Tyler gave me a half hand when I said it was like theory of the oppressed um yes similar but but sort of regardless of rather than splitting hairs um Around process drama and theatre of the oppressed and sort of forum theatre. Forum theatre, that's theater. what I meant. Yeah. I meant that. Anyway, doesn't matter. They're all, they're all different, <laughs> apparently. But let's you, talk you about... You can work them in together. It's like, it's a, it's a whole thing. Uh, yeah, it's a whole thing. It's a whole thing. This, this is a whole, it's a whole thing. subset. It's a whole thing. Um, <laughs> in regards to this whole thing, I've heard a lot of critiques of this whole thing. Yeah. There are a lot of people who claim it doesn't work, that it's ineffectual... Um, is it? Um, <laughs> I think, I think... Advocate for it, if you want. I think, honestly, um, it depends on what community you're doing it with. Okay, tell me more about that. Um, cause there's, uh, there's, I love theatre and community. I love doing community with, uh, doing, um, theatre work yeah. with community. Um, but something like 
a process drama workshop where you spend a day with the community mm-hmm. and you kind of lead them through um, different workshops. I don't, I don't know if that works so well in, in somewhere like Australia. But in Papua New Guinea, where their culture is so performative and they sing and they dance, it was so much easier to get them into doing it than it is to get them to get somebody in Australia to do it. Even first year drama students were more hesitant to get up and do a, and do a process than these community members in Papua New Guinea who didn't have any any theatre background. They they just wanted to get up and and perform their lives because that's their culture. So what is it, do you think, about Australian culture then that sort of forbids people from being able to (laughs) take part so quickly? Uh, Um, Tyler has his hand up. (laughs) Ego. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Tell me more about ego and Um, why it's bad. (laughs) (laughs) I, I I think there's this thing about not wanting to be the first person to get up and do it wrong. Yes. I think we have a fear of failure. We have that in Australia. It's like I I don't want to get up. I don't want to do this wrong because then I I will get embarrassed and my ego will be hurt. Mm. Whereas, so it's like a protectivity yeah, protectiveness thing. Whereas in in, in somewhere like PNG they already sing and dance. That's that's their thing. They um I I remember getting taught a um, celebratory dance by one of the um, university leaders and it was just it was a, a simple question from me oh is there is there a song or a dance that might suit for this situation and she stood there for a second and went no not that one not that one not this one this one will work and just she pulled it out from not even her own um section of of Papua New Guinea her own district it was a completely separate district because she sits there and learns all of these different dances and all of these different songs Mm -hmm. from different districts around Papua New Guinea um so she just as soon as I asked her that question she just sat there and went not that one not that one not that one this one will work for this situation because they have that many cultural touchstones yeah that they can build on. So I think I think that it's it's less confronting for them to get up and perform. Um so you're doing honors as well. Um yep. so you sort of when I you did the process theater uh, process drama thing. Yes. Um and yep. then you did the repairman and you're also doing honors. So tell me about your honors project. You said earlier in the show that it has a certain level of emotion to it for you as well. It does, yes, because it's based in my hometown. Okay. Where uh, is your hometown? Oki, out near Toowoomba. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It's, it's again, kind of based in the realm of um, theatre and community and working with communities um, in a theatre forum. Um, but I'm, I'm working on doing a verbatim piece based around um, a contamination issue that's happening out there at the moment, which is basically um, the army airbase out there use, have used a firefighting foam 
Oh, this which is that? Yeah. That, that has leaked a lot of PFOS and PFOA chemicals into the groundwater, into the creek. Um, and this has happened over maybe a 10, 20 year time frame. So a lot of people out there have um, quite high levels of this chemical in their system. Um, and there's also a contamination label that's on the town so people can't sell their houses. Um, like I've, I've got my mum's friends out there can't sell the house that they renovated, mm -hmm. have about um, 90 grand or 100, somewhere between 90 and 110 grand invested into this house that they cannot get back at this point because there's a contamination label on the land and nobody can buy out there even if they wanted to buy out there they can't buy out there because the bank won't the banks won't give them Finance the money it, yeah. um there's there's a lot of kind of tentative um talk about health issues um the un have actually released um a document saying hey those chemicals are banned now, they're, right? They're banned. They're supposed to be banned. They're still out using them. There was actually a spill um, over the Easter weekend at the Brisbane airport because yes. Qantas is still yes. using these specific chemicals. The, well, <laughs> it's it's the, the production of the chemicals is illegal, not the use, right? I think, I think That's the loophole they're using. I think it's banned by the government, but because Qantas is not the government. Oh, yeah. It's banned federally, but not state yeah, or something. Yeah, it's some stupid, stupid loophole. Um, but yeah, there's, there's things like, um, testicular cancer, uh, thyroid issues that the UN have said, Hey, this is probably these, these issues are probably a result of this chemical. Um, and the government have also done environmental reports out there, which I've read and are remarkably non-committal about anything okay. that it's, yeah, it's. Things like they have town meetings out there and um, the, the community of Oki are getting told, hey, look, it's probably fine. You can, you can drink the water. It's probably fine. We can't confirm that there's any issues with this. It's fine. Don't worry about it. And the locals are kind of going, I have all of these chemicals in my system. My kids have all of these chemicals in their system and they haven't even drunk the contaminated water. Yeah. So how are all of these chemicals that you can't tell us what they might do to us, but they have a, a I think a half-life where they stay in your system for about 10 years. Yeah. What, how, how is that okay? for any of the people out there. So that's that's kind of the, So what's your angle? Um, my angle going out there is because it's something um, very personal. It's a town that I spent 19 years in. Um, I have friends out there. I have family out there. Um, coming at it from, from an angle of kind of, because it's verbatim, it's very hard to decide what the angle is until you have everything in front of you, which I don't yet. Um, but it's either going to be coming out of from an angle of legacy and looking at in the future what might be the result of this. 
um, is, is there any positive legacy that we can leave from this situation? Or um, coming at it from a slightly more controversial angle and looking at the government response, which is, is probably where, getting, where we're going to go at the moment because the interviews that I've done have been very um, vocal about the government response. Yeah. You say we. Is this a collaborative project or is that just a habit? Uh, that's probably just a habit. Um, also because the people that I've talked to so far are my mother's best friend and her husband mm-hmm. and my mother, because as soon as, I, as soon as I told my mother about the project, she was kind of like, can I, can I do it? I want to do it. Um, so, yeah. So, um, yeah, it's, it's quite a... Mm, like... I don't live there at the moment. I haven't lived in Oki for six years. So I feel quite detached from the situation. My mother, however, has still has a property in Oki as well, which she can't sell, which is her entire retirement fund. It's, it's all of the money that she... Yeah, has, has been going to mortgage payments for years. Mortgage payments. She is just getting by because she's got renters in there. Um, she doesn't live in there. Live there at the moment. She lives out at Tara, um, but for her, it's quite emotional because because she can't pay off this mortgage, because she can't make back this money, um, she is concerned about not being able to leave anything behind for her children. Which, like my sister, my brothers, none of us are particularly concerned about money because I mean. You'd be alright. We've never had any, so it's fine. <laughs> um, but I feel like for mum, because she is getting older and she is getting to the age where she should be able to retire in five years, she should be able to retire, but she's not going to be able to now because of this. Um, it's it's this feeling of not having a backup plan, not having a retirement plan, or having her retirement plan taken away from her. Um, and um, not then also not being able to leave something behind for her children, which is really unfair when you think about it, because that's kind of what people want to do, is they want to leave something behind, because if you're not there, then, hey, that's at something. least pay my funeral fees. <laughs> <laughs> um, I... So why why approach this through verbatim theatre? What's the power of verbatim theatre as opposed to sort of building a narrative around this yeah. and your mum? Verbatim theatre is has the ability to um, use people's specific words. Um, and my kind of research question around it is... Is, is there a way of using these people's specific words, their specific opinions, um, without damaging their social standing within a community, which verbatim theatre sometimes does. Mm. Um, it also... It has the potential, if done right, which... There's, there's some verbatim plays that have done it right and there's a lot that haven't, um, but it has the potential of 
giving a community um, agency in telling their own story, yeah. in having the ability to put forward the things that they want to put forward in their own words. Um, so yeah, for me, it's about um, being able to tell these people's story, but also keep them safe. So we'll see how it goes. Hmm. Yeah. How are you planning on doing a showing of it at the end of the year? Is it going to be an ongoing project beyond honors? Obviously, a year is quite a short amount of yeah. time. Yeah. Um, um, what are you thinking? What's I, next? My plan for the end of this year. It's very hard to put a verbatim play together quickly. Yes. Um, yeah. Usually it's, difficult. It's, it's something that has to take so much time, and because I've only got about another six months left in that probably about three or four to put this together because um, I have to have it done by August. Right. So, so you can do the showing? So, so you I can do, do the, reflection on the showing? So I can do the showing, so I can do the exegesis, which is due by the end of October. Um, so I, it has to be done by August. Um, so I've got a very limited amount of time. It's not going to be a full show. It's basically going to be a... I'm hoping for a staged staged reading we'll see how we go um but I'm, i've got to do it twice i've got to do it once in oki for the participants so yep. we can talk about how they feel about it mm-hmm. how they feel they've been represented um and then once again in brisbane as a marking um performance also for uh professional artists who work in that field i'm hoping to get a few people like david burton um uh and dramaturgs and kind of professional artists who can sit there and critique on the work and say yes this is something that's going to be um interesting this is compelling this is compelling to people outside of just the your participant group yeah um when all of that is said and done, my next hope, and I'm going to leave this up to the participant group, is that we can continue on past this year and I can maybe get uh, some Arts Queensland funding or Arts Australia funding um, to continue it on and make it a, a bigger show. Um, have the opportunity to talk to more people than just the small participant group that I've got. Alternatively, if that participant group say, hey, no, we don't like how you've represented us in this, go away, then that's fine. I leave it there. Um, it's, it's more of a, for me, it's more of a leaving the power to the participant group in that sense. Um, because it, even though it is something that is important to me, I'm also not the only person that it's important to. So, yeah. Hmm. So empowering empowering the, the people whose story you're telling is yes. ultra important to you. Yeah, yeah. How do you... Would you ever create a work that is entirely fictive? Like entirely fictional? Um, that's one way of doing it. Um, would you ever though? Would I? Um, I don't think I would for that specific situation, um, just because 
if I don't necessarily have these people's permission to do it because it is something that is very personal and very confronting and it's a lot of people that have lost lost their livelihoods there's a lot of farmers out there who it's gone. can't their entire livelihood is gone mm-hmm. um it's without the permission of those people um I wouldn't want to go ahead with it and I feel that doing something fictional um not necessarily it doesn't necessarily take away from the gravity of the circumstances out there but I don't think it gets across the most important thing Mm. which is the voices of the people out there yeah so um sort of expanding on from that how much how much approval do you like talking like kind of from an ethics perspective like if there's one grumpy old dude who's like i don't want you to do this but like like what what percentage what amount of people do you need to sort of feel like you have ethical permission to go ahead which is a really big question um yeah Which is interesting because there's a lot of people out there that do just want people to stop talking about the contamination issue. Mm. Right, um, because it is, probably is perpetuating which what is, they think is perpetuating. Which is fair. It's, it's perpetuating it. Um, however, I kind of also feel like the people who do want to talk about it deserve to be able to talk about it if they want to. Um, talking about something is... A, a really good way to deal with it. It's the only way. It's the only way to deal with it. You, you have to talk about it. Um, so yeah, it's it's a very delicate balance of of looking at a situation and saying this group of people want to talk about it. This group of people don't want to talk about it. Can we allow this peop- this this group who do want to talk about it to do so without antagonising this group? Um, and it's it's a really delicate balance, and it is something that I am very mindful of because it- I'm not sure whether or not I actually have the uh, knowledge yet how of how to deal with that. Is it, is it possible to talk about this without antagonizing that other group? Probably not. So you're going to have to antagonize them. Somebody's going to have to be anti- antagonized. Um, which my, my supervisor um, for this is Sean May. Mm, and I'm, good boy. I'm really good boy, Sean May. Ha- I'm really <laughs> happy I've got good old Smee behind me because um, he's done so much of these really intense kind of community projects like things like behind the cane and and logan where there were a lot of people logan was interesting it's interesting to me no 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 (laughs) (laughs) there was there was a dad joke for the podcast (laughs) we 
all need a good dad joke. It was um, the QMF show that they did in Woden in 2015. Mm -hmm. um, and it was a that was a delicate balance as well because there are a lot of people that didn't want to talk about the perception that a lot of people have of Logan. Yeah. Um, they wanted to talk about why they loved Logan. Um, and yeah, it's, it's a lot of finding what people want to talk about. Do people want to talk about the... Um, riots and things that have happened in Logan or do they want to talk about the fact that they moved to Logan and when they moved to Logan they found people who could support them and they found friends in Logan they found a community in Logan that they felt accepted in because Logan is such a multicultural mm. city that you can find someone there who's going to relate to you. So, yeah, Logan was not perfect, but Logan was also very interesting and, and I think developed my kind of interest in working with communities in this kind of sense. So, yeah. So long, long story short, Sean Me is your arbiter of ethical decisions. Sean Me, help me. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, no, Sean, Sean is great and Sean's got the experience that I am lacking to kind of help point me in the right direction when I am wandering off in a different direction as I'm prone to do. What's a, uh, I'm really, <laughs> I'm really interested in this, this sort of representation issue because, um. I like representation. Yeah, I, well, I have a lot of opinions on this stuff, uh, none of which I will share. Because <laughs> this podcast ain't about me. Um, suck it. No. Um, <laughs> I'm a fiction writer. That should tell you enough as it is. Um, oh, I'm, a, I'm a fiction writer. But I love fiction. I Don't get me wrong. No, 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 no. I'm not getting you wrong. I'm going to ask you a difficult question. Um, uh, so what about um, people who say make war movies without ever having gone to war ever having been in the war or wars that no longer are I mean, there's no one left let's say or there's two yep. or three people left and they don't speak to any of them mm. what are the ethics there like how, how do the ethics I guess of like a small community like Oki translate in a larger scale that's that's a big question because Ethics is such a tricky thing and it's a tricky thing in art and there are arguments to be made that do artists necessarily need to meet certain ethical standards? Is, is the art more important than the ethics? Um, and I, it's, it's... What do you think? It's such a loaded, loaded situation. Um, <laughs> yeah, but, yeah, but what do you think though? <laughs> what do I think? I think in a situation like Oki, where it's already, um, it already has such an emotional toll on people, I think it's very important to consider the ethics in that situation because these people are already losing so much. The last thing they need is to have their stories 
been been stolen by some artist that walks in and goes, hey, I'm going to help you out. What can I do? Yep, no, I'm going to take your story, your story, your story, and I'm going to make all the money off it. That's that's really dodgy to me. Um, But at the same time, if you want to make a movie about war and you want to make a specific statement about war it's not it doesn't necessarily have to be kind of specific to any situation in the war what if it is what if it is like thin red line like i don't think terence malick ever went to war oh thin red line i actually really enjoyed that movie it's a great movie it's a great movie (laughs) Um, it's the second time Terence Malick has come up on this podcast. <laughs> it's only going to get more. <laughs> uh, no. Um, yeah, it's... Thin Red Line is a great movie. And it's it may be a great movie because Terence Malick never went to war. I don't think he did. Um, I don't know either. Um, I didn't even know that that was the name of the director until right now. Um, but yeah, it's important. <laughs> like, like thinking brain. Yeah, it's it's <laughs> so much dead air. I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna vamp. Yeah, um, it's a tricky question, and that's why I'm asking it. <laughs> And I'm saying that as a diversionary tactic while I think. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, it's... You can't always be careful making art. And I think it depends on the kind of art that you want to make. If you're going out to a specific place like Oki to help the community, yes, 100%. Ethics is important. If you want to make a movie about war, but your main goal is not necessarily the community that that like if involves, if it's not activism, yeah, then well, not not even activism. If it it's not if you're not directly associating yourself with people in that situation, then maybe you can be a little less, little more slack. With the ethics, man, <laughs> I I want to I want to go deep into this because isn't 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 the reverse of that exactly the opposite? That's like a reverse argument for a cultural appropriation, right? Isn't it? Yeah. The yeah. the the further you away you are from something, the less of a right you have yeah. to use it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Just to throw that a spanner really in the is. works. Um, and I think it is important for. It's important to allow people whose story is being told to tell their story. Um, and I'm I'm a hundred percent and hundred percent agree with that. I I think I do agree with telling telling the stories that you know. For for me, talking about being an ace person or you know, all those boring white people stories that I have the capacity to tell being 
uh, why? But you're gonna say being boring. That shocked me. Um, <laughs> look, I'm 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 a very boring person. I did nothing this morning. That's um, fine. I but, wish I did nothing this morning. <laughs> um, it's the one chance I have. Um, yeah, but like I would love to enable the stories of people I can't necessarily identify with. I would love to enable those stories, but I don't want to be the person telling those stories. Mm. I think I think that for me, at least personally for me, and I think it's a question that every artist has to ask themselves at some point, is where does that ethics line sit for you or does that ethics line exist at all for you but for me personally the ethics line sits in I'm not going to try and tell a story that is not my own I'd love to be able to help enable it but I'm not going to I'm not going to attempt to tell the story of an Aboriginal person because that is not my right um, but if I can, if I can sit down with a person and say, Hey, what's the story you want to tell? Here's some money. Here's some backing. Let's get this going. Um, then that is, is probably the closest I would be comfortable with getting to that line. Cause I think it's important for, uh, everybody to have their stories told. Um, but at least in the age that we're at right now, and especially with topics about appropriation, um, then yeah, we, we need to be careful about telling stories that aren't our own. Whew. Sorry if I offended anyone. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't think you did. <laughs> I think that was a pretty safe, inoffensive answer. But hey, <laughs> let me tell you a joke. Tyler's <laughs> doing that, that, that cut the throat uh, thing. Um, hey, uh, I'm glad you got to tell your story here. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Hey, this has been a good chat. Um, yeah, fun chats. Not much, not much going on until you're sort of... Have you got a working title for your show about Oki? Not yeah. yet. Not at all it'll probably be um like the week before i go show's next week i need a title hey sean got any ideas um yeah no um i I haven't got anywhere near working on the script yet so no title until the script probably the titles is always the last thing for me okay i can't based something around a title. The Repairman is the only thing that I've ever done that has been based around the title. Yeah, yeah, I was going to say, it's like, that, that, that the title is a no-brainer. Yeah, the title for that was a no-brainer. Um, but yeah. It's not called Kaz Crop's Asexual Adventure. <laughs> no, I wish it was. That would have been fun. That would have been a fun title. But no, no, because it wasn't, it wasn't just about me. It was, it was um, very much about Annabelle as well. And mm. it was very much about um, the cast getting to own their characters and have a little bit of fun. Um, Andrew had a lot of fun. 
Andrew is not nearly as douchey as Richard. I just want to say that right now. Andrew is a lovely person. He's he's acting, (laughs) believe it or not. Um, Well, thanks. Thanks for sitting down and having a conversation. And I look forward to seeing uh, what you do with the town of Oki. So do I. Thanks, Gus. Thanks for listening to the House Conspiracy podcast recorded at House Conspiracy and produced by me, Jonathan O'Brien, and Tyler William Morrison. If you have feedback or you want to say hi, or if there's something you'd like to see us do, you can email us at house at houseconspiracy.org and you can email me directly about ideas for future podcasts at jonathan at houseconspiracy.org. You can also support us by becoming a member or by donating to us at houseconspiracy.org slash donate. See you next time.